Hey guys, it's Tim here and welcome to the Meeting Room Podcast. We had a few microphone issues in this episode today, but hopefully it doesn't distract you too much. You can still enjoy hearing that amazing Jonathan Francis and his awesome insights. Hello everyone listening, welcome back yet again for another episode. Um, please come and join us in the Meeting Room. And we've got a very full full room today. I'm Jed Thurkettle. I'm joined by Tim and me here, of course, will be co-hosting with me. And we have, they're all special guests, but another fantastic guest on today, Mr. Jonathan Francis. Hello there. Hi. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. How are you today? Very good. Very good. How are you all getting on? Yeah, we're all good. We're all excited for this one, actually. Very excited. It's a virtual meeting room. So, but let's crack on with it. So, Jonathan... Can you tell us at the moment, what do you do, a bit about yourself, what have you done in the past and some of the exciting projects you've, you've worked on? Yeah, sure. So uh, in terms of, so right now I run the data unit inside Google, one of Google's ideas teams. So we're called the Zoo. We work with brands, creative agencies, media agencies to develop essentially new uses of Google technologies to use in um to use as new products, to use as promotion, and to create new utilities for users. And specifically, I'm helping with research and helping with uh, automation. So they're kind of my two areas of focus, specifically in the creative space. Uh, in the past, I was a creative strategist. Again, it's same kind of research, a little less quant, definitely less mathematical. And uh, I was also, I ran a few businesses in the past as well. So that was kind of my route in. And in terms of projects worked on, yeah, we've we've done a bit of everything. We work across a lot of Google products with a lot of different brands. We've worked with Pottermore for the Harry Potter series. We've worked, we've done work with Nike, Ubisoft. Yeah, we've got quite a lot of um, projects that have, that have gone public and, uh, and have. So a hell of a rap sheet, uh, for sure. Um, now, as well. Seeing as we're introducing you, who you are, and a bit about yourself, rumor has it you are a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. <laughs> Way less than I used to be. <laughs> what sort of activities did you did you used to do to get that little kick? <laughs> uh, I used to do a lot of skydiving, like a lot, mostly wingsuiting. So on those big uh, squirrel suits that you'd see, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I I competed and had a team, so yeah, we'd be doing a lot of that. <laughs> It's very good. I recommend it to anybody. It's it's very very good fun. Uh, unless I'm getting sponsored, I don't think there's a chance <laughs> of me jumping out of anything that tall anytime soon. Um, out of interest, then, were there any skills or sort of mental capacities that you feel you actually have taken from these adrenaline sports into into your working life? Do you know what? From I'd say more so from coaching. From coaching, it's been really useful because that's directly transferable. Like you, you really have to very quickly, it's a bit of a trial by fire. You do see that some people just do not accept information and retain it and apply it the same way as other people. And because of the number of people that you're working through, it's not like running a team where you have, you know, the same set of people day in, day out and, and you kind of get to know them and you're like, okay, this is how you work with information. It really is. You have to quickly work out, okay, you're not getting this. We need to try something new. And that's been really, really transferable. Um, now your background university obviously a lot of people are listening now are at university um us three are we're all at nottingham where did you go and what course did you do what sort of background do you have growing up so i went to nottingham as well which was yeah always first choice and it was just a brilliant experience to be completely honest start to finish um i know people have very different experiences at university the more grads i speak to i realize it's very difficult for some foreign students as well coming in not not kind of feeling quite at ease and yeah I do see that people have different experiences I was very very lucky so the Nottingham experience for me was uh business school um so on Jubilee campus staying in Newark Halls and by the way I hear that Janogli Library actually isn't sinking this was this was like uh the urban legend whilst we were it was sinking for some reason in fact i saw it was this year somebody put in a freedom of information request to check whether it was sinking so clearly the myth has persisted i think we'll need to start that one back up again (laughs) clearly yeah make sure this is just uh censored out so yeah uh jubilee campus it was it was a great course 
and I was doing management with French, I think it was called at the time. That came with a year out in Bordeaux, which again, if you get a chance to go to Bordeaux, you've got Dune du Pilar, like right on the coast, biggest sand dune in Europe. And uh, yeah, gorgeous city, um, but very immersive as well. So yeah, I, I have no complaints at all about time in Nottingham. I think uh, you're very lucky to be at a great uni. Brilliant. I think we, we'd all agree with that, to be honest. Um, fantastic experience so far. We're all looking forward to the third year. Um, now, I believe, was it at university you actually founded your own company? Yeah, I was doing it a little before uni, but I think I just started taking it more seriously at uni. So essentially, I was uh, I was selling, buying and selling antique collectible toys, um, mostly the yeah. old toy cars. And the reason I got into it was very simple arbitrage. Um, we had an auction house in our local town and uh, they were just very bad at marketing. So they got nobody through the door. Everything sold under price. You had online marketplaces springing up. Um, it was very easy to start building your own website at the time. I managed to get a very good presence on uh, search engines and yeah, was engaged in arbitrage for about two or three years and then turned it into a... Uh, valuation service effectively where i'd get people sending in requests for valuations which is what most people wanted who owned them and that would go out to a network of uh, dealers they'd bid for it and then there'd be a commission on the um, referral so yeah it was a way of scaling and yeah that was why i ran so what what do you feel that from starting i believe the the company was dinky life yeah um from starting this company what do you feel that you you learnt? Um, along the way and how do you feel that might have influenced how you manage your teams uh, in, in today's environment? It went through the works so from the very start to the end right I, I was joining when the web was just becoming kind of a thing and you could really there would it was easy to slip into a niche and really you know own that space all the way through to the financial crash so it was you know from start to finish it was turbulent I think would be the word do you know what I, I'd advise anyone with i advise anybody doing a business degree to engage in some kind of arbitrage it just teaches you so so much um, and it's very very accessible um, and gives you that springboard to go and to try and build something else but best case you learn things like importance of cash flow it's one thing hearing it in a lecture it's another realizing that you know oh hell i've run i've literally run out of money <laughs> what, what what do you do when yeah. you have no cash i think that's a super important lesson importance of relationships so building customer relationships having people trust you and also the importance of being able to package something so it's a really difficult skill but being able to make you know a complex offering beautiful simple easy to understand for somebody looking at it very accessible so these are things yeah you, you get them in um of course from your lecturers and in your seminars but really getting out there and accepting okay you know what I'm going to set this amount of money aside and if I lose it I take this as a learning experience best case I make something off it I think yeah it's it's a really valuable uh way of learning and, and I assume that was sort of your your first taste of or, or route into real life marketing um now now going into this this industry and entering the world of marketing what experience did you have um before becoming sort of a freelance consultant as such? Well, it was, uh, this was financial crash, bear in mind. So anything luxury was tanked during the financial crash. It was, uh, yeah, a lot of people got burnt, scarred, still carry those scars. Um, yeah. It was difficult. And yeah, for a lot of people, trade just dried up overnight. And uh, I was very lucky, had very good relationships with and long-term relationships with the people I was working with. Most of them had primary businesses. So some ran, you know, gaming companies, some consultancies, etc. And yeah, they knew trading was tough. And I was really lucky they'd seen the work I'd done in the past promoting um, the businesses that I'd set up and offered me work and said, look, I've, I've seen what you've been doing in this area do you want to come and do something for me so it was a bit of a lucky break really and yeah that was principally advertising and some web work but no that really um that was really helpful so you've mentioned a few times the importance of relationships 
How did you go about establishing these and how do you manage to maintain them? The phone, <laughs> just being able to pick up the phone, right? Uh, and have a chat and, um, you know, listen to what's going on in their lives. Just things that are irrelevant to, um, you know, trying to, uh, trying to sell goods, but just taking a genuine interest in, you know, who they are, why they use your products and yeah, keeping that relationship going. I think, yeah, it's just being willing to, I guess, make friends with the people who want to deal with you and spend time talking to you. And yeah, it was, uh, it really paid dividends. Certainly as well, I've really learned throughout the years the importance of a good mailing list. Uh, it really can't be understated. And uh, yeah, what you've got with a mailing list, if you ever, it sounds ridiculous, if you ever need to launch a product, if you ever need support on something or, you know, um, just a, a network to jump on something that you need people to engage with, then yeah, having that there, the engagement rates compared to social media, you, you can get something like 30 odd percent, 35 percent maybe. When you've got thousands of people in a mailing list, it's... Uh, it makes future things a lot, lot easier. Um, and now, especially, I think it's an important thing to, to raise for for people looking to enter the job market or going where they first start making their contacts, be that through internships or or graduate jobs. Um, how, how did you, I say, build that mailing list? Was this purely just through going through the motions, gaining new clients? Yeah, mainly. So it was through a decent web presence and, you know, offering value to people who wanted it. So if people wanted updates, again, this was a time before mailboxes got completely clogged up. So yeah, people did want that information. Uh, actually, do you know what the the best way that the best way that I built that network was um, providing books, guides, because if you were able to um, provide the the central kind of resource for knowledge and get people to buy it show that they're a, a in market i guess in that space then uh yeah it becomes a lot lot easier but again this is a great reason why arbitrage is useful because you inherently build these relationships and trust because they don't come back otherwise um now fast forwarding to well present day the the more recent times working at google um firstly before we kick off and i think a few people want to know is it like what some people imagine with the slides going down instead of stairs, everything like that? <laughs> Do we have uh, slides and uh, and all that? Do you know what? Google is a great place to work. It really just is. Yeah. We, I think there's still a slide in, uh, in um, Switzerland, in the Swiss office. But mostly <laughs> this is, yeah. Generally, what's really special is great facilities, great people. Um, great design as well. It kind of feels like being in uh, some a mix between a uh, kids' playground and and a kind of like just just beyond IKEA, one up from IKEA. Dunelm, maybe. Yeah, maybe is Dunelm up from IKEA? My, uh, it, it depends. Depends on your. It depends on your brand loyalty at that point, I guess. Where where you'd rate them? Or maybe it's because in Nottingham you've got a great IKEA, so you've got to be loyal. Exactly. Um, your your sort of day to day routine then the not not the big projects or or the the more the menial tasks. What what's your day to day routine looking like? Are you meeting people? Are you stuck at a desk? What does it look like for you? Right now, I think we're all stuck at a desk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but general day to day. So, I mean, it, it's a nice variation, actually. I get to spend a, quite a bit of time programming, which is uh, what I want to be doing more of. So trying to stay hands on and, um, and help problem solve client briefings and catch up with with teams um so usually there'll be like ideation sessions um i get involved in some of our sprints so sprint is if you've read a book like uh, sprint by google ventures it's a format to try to get from a essentially a problem to a very early prototype very quickly with all the right people in the room so i do get involved in those um and also yeah just uh, running the team so making sure the team's aligned that they've got all the everything they need um they're able to access any resources or trainings that they need um and yeah that they just understand what they need to be delivering get some feedback on what they've been putting together um so currently we're trying to boot up some qualitative study work so we've got uh three of the 
um, people that I look after are currently working together on that. So this week, for example, was really focusing on that new product and, and getting that live. It sounds like you've got a nice mix between managing teams, managing people versus still being hands-on and, I guess, doing doing what you love or enjoy where the passion is because people tend to, as they, they go through their careers and, and, and move up, they lose that that hands-on experience and it becomes managing people, doesn't it? Um, now, what is your what would you say your favourite project that you've worked on in, in the past is and why would why would this be the choice? Uh, that's a good question. Do you know what? I really like the pro bono benevolent kind of projects where we've done some yeah. great work with governments on health, obesity, um, and, uh, and the like, um, really trying to understand causes, find interventions. Uh, so yeah, we've done a lot of work in that space. Um, Otherwise, the the Ubisoft work was was great. So we worked on uh, the launch of Assassin's Creed and built a machine learning model which would recognize and translate hieroglyphs, hieroglyphics, um, which is surprisingly difficult to do, actually, because hieroglyphics are read in a really strange way. You read them horizontally and vertically to get the context of whatever the symbol is. A lot of them are degraded. So what we needed to do was uh, effectively get a lot of contributors to outline the shapes from images um, and then train a machine on recognising the vectors that uh, users had drawn out around these images. Um, and we were able to create something that researchers still use um, and, in fact, that was picked up by the Google Arts and Culture team. Um, so this is now called Project Fabricius. Uh, went out in July, um, and that makes hieroglyphics way more accessible. Um, so yeah, that's I think the stuff that's really affected product is is what gets me excited, and also the the things that move the needle on uh, on benevolent and uh, and kind of culture impactful projects. That sounds really fascinating. I think. One question I guess I'm talking from our listeners' perspective is you talk a lot about programming and the technical side. So for someone like us leaving university or young people, how important is it to learn these new technologies and the new programming skills if you want to kind of get into this new age of um, careers, basically? It's really tough, isn't it? I found myself kind of beached. Do you know what? The, The reason I taught myself to program was because I was envious. I would go into, as a a Brand strategy. So my my past, I did some work for Saatchi and Saatchi, did some work for AMVB BDO, like creative agencies, which is general planning work, uh, strategy work, research, consultancy around uh, around ideas and how to position brands. And uh, I'd go into the room with really talented data scientists, analysts, engineers, and it was kind of like, I still get that feeling. It's kind of like magic. You look at it, and it sounds cliche, but um, I've actually asked this question to quite a large panel, asking if you could have a superpower out of this big list of superpowers, which would you choose? And as one of the superpowers, I put the the power to control um, machines, which I guess is is effectively what programming is. And I think something like twenty five percent of people chose that, so it is a superpower. Programming, I still see as a superpower. Um, <laughs> so off the back of that, I went to night school and uh was doing the day job putting in the hours and and after that at night we go to uni uh do the masters um and that was in data science um and yeah that that was really well rounded because you do the maths you do the programming so the question you asked was how important are those skills now um i'd say the skill of finding something you're envious of and then going out and finding how to do it is more important than doing something that you're not you know passionate about but yeah if if you can really uh take advantage of that sense of jealousy then you know and uh and for good positively um you can do a lot with it it's a really powerful driver so i don't think you need to be able to program but it certainly isn't going to hurt you 
I think because people are, especially in in today's world, people see tech and see the way everything's moving, moving and think it's not necessarily a requirement, but t- to be at the top level, I need to be able to be some level of, of techie. But as you've said, if, if your passion isn't within that industry, there's there's no point forcing it because you'll, you'll never reach that level if you're not passionate about it. Um, but for you, what was it like and what is it like working in, in such a forward-thinking environment, both technologically and, I guess, you guys, the, these ideas, you guys bouncing off each other are, are, are years ahead of everyone else? It's um, It's two worlds, really, because when you work with a lot of brands, it's surprising that they aren't putting some things in place. So it's doing the work of... You know, this is what you can do. These are some kind of new ideas, new uses, quite basic of things that we've been um, launching for a while. Um, on the other hand, it is a case of kind of a bit more uh, open brief. Okay, let's just go and fix something. Generally, to, to answer your question properly, um, the focus is more on what problems do users have and going out and finding problems. that. I could throw a stone at Google and hit um, 20 problem solvers, very, very effective problem solvers. But problem finders are still um, a rare breed everywhere. Um, people who are really good at being insightful, observant, seeing what issues people have and treating that as an opportunity. I'd actually say th- that's more important than the solution because a solution to the right problem, a bad solution to the right problem um, really does deliver better results than the right solution to the wrong problem so yeah i'd say that it isn't that's the reason it seems quite a way ahead um because it's that anticipation of what people need and trying to uh to cater for that just just out of interest would you say the ability to solve a problem or the ability to identify a problem is something you can pick up through experience or would you say it's more um genetic as in it's more something that you're born with i think anyone can realize that they're realizing something i mean that's what finding an insight is right and in the same way anybody can find a market gap or you know find a problem that needs to be solved anybody can do it the more often you do it though i think uh that's that's how you train yourself the i think the other thing that the other trait i see in people who are good at spotting problems is they're novelty seekers they do tend to put themselves in new situations partly because those new situations are transferable to other situations um which is why you get so many like great physicists working in programming and programmers working in biology and because these skills are so transferable um but also that sense of novelty you pick up when you're putting yourself in a new situation just more alert um and i guess more absorbent of things that you're seeing um so yeah that that does seem to be a trait in uh, people who are quite observant of of realizing that they're realizing something and i think this was it's something we perhaps want to touch on later on as well but it's a nice little uh point for for those listening now um what for you having been in the industry and not just the industry of of tech in inverted commas but in in the industry of people and and managing people and working with people what what makes someone stand out to you whether that be a, a graduate or someone who's further further down the line what what qualities make you interested in perhaps hiring that person or, or bringing them back even for the for the interview stage yeah that's a good question personally i look for makers i really want people who have made things and i think more and more it's a slow transition in industry. I think over the next maybe five, 10 years, we're going to see it happen more. Where people really want to see what you've done. And, you know, in programming, that would be a GitHub account or uh, something you've pushed into production or a, a case study. In marketing, you know, it, it would be if you set up a business, I think that always helps. But really, I'm looking for makers because th- thinkers of, are much more abundant than uh than makers and uh there's just so much value in having somebody who's not afraid to test learn make mistakes but will dive headfirst and puts tangibility a kind of first 
uh, I really look for that. So the idea that perhaps someone's failed trying to do something as opposed to successfully thinking about something is is more more appealing to you either just to have something that that they've tried to put out there if it's failed that's absolutely fine and if it's succeeded that's fine as well but i think having something tangible makes a world of difference compared to reading you know a static page that's the thing that makes you leap out for me showing that you've put yourself out there and put the time into really building something and uh and got your hands dirty and for those for those listening i think definitely head over to it's careers.google.com um and that's for sort of i believe information on is it internships graduate schemes as well as possible submissions yeah internships apprenticeships um grad schemes uh everything's run through careers.google.com um and we have a great hiring team recruitment team uh so yeah i, I would encourage people to uh, to check that out definitely get yourself over to there guys um i believe it is as incredible as it sounds now bringing us back to to your your working life you mentioned earlier that um you worked with well the zoo google zoo what would you say was your most challenging sprint assignment (laughs) we've had a few um (laughs) (laughs) uh you get different reasons for sprints being challenging. Um, there are a few things that will kill a sprint, and you really try to mitigate for these uh, for these issues. But you know, poor alignment is one reason. Uh, just losing motivation or confidence on the on the client side. I think what's oh, the most challenging. Do you know what the most challenging actually wasn't for those reasons? The most challenging was where we had a client who had just done the most amazing piece of research I'd ever seen. It was like an encyclopedia that was just so, every page was, yeah, I, I can't uh, I can't reveal the client's name. We didn't complete the project, but um, it was a gaming company, mobile gaming company, and they just had so much um, understanding of who they were designing for. And uh, it was looking at this and saying, <laughs> what can we add to this like what, how can we they'd been through the works they'd done the ideation they'd, they'd run their own sprints they'd done the research um they knew their product inside out they knew their users inside out it was for an kind of older user who truthfully i personally i wasn't used to working with my team didn't have a huge amount of understanding of so it was working in a slightly different space they had years of experience it was just so daunting uh working on that it made it very challenging but nice to get the bar set high and they were very happy with what we uh what we put out we didn't end up delivering a, a um uh something produced out the back of it but at least uh they were happy with our, our efforts um now in terms of dealing with clients and and in different situations you, you've dealt with a lot of very prestigious clients as well you mentioned some uh very big names earlier how do you deal with that pressure because the idea that you're here you you need to add value to to these companies you need to be able to help these companies how do you deal with the pressure personally yourself in dealing with these clients truthfully it's not really a problem to be honest because we're all just trying to solve a problem it's more interesting getting to know kind of what their take is what their culture is try and get hold of all their materials and understand their brand and how they like their outlook um and how they've tried to solve problems in the past and failed and what's worked for them. I think it's that learning opportunity that kind of it's almost exponential when you come together with another brand because you yeah. you learn a lot from what they're doing. Um, and it, our vantage point is just incredible. We see so much breadth of, uh, of different brands and companies. So you learn an awful lot in quite a short space of time. So I wouldn't say there's a huge amount of pressure um, the other, I guess the other reason is that everybody's just a human inside that company. So it's more about the people like, okay, yeah, Jen, I saw her last week. Yeah, she's cool. Um, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't say there's that pressure on delivery. What what can make it challenging as opposed to pressurized is uh, when you've got a company that does lots of experimentation, puts out lots of new products, works with lots of partners like the bigger sports companies. It's just more challenging to find a space that's really novel um but at the same time they're much more 
because they know it's it's rare to find that great space to to kind of unlock it they're much more motivated to get something done and they really know a good idea when they see it you talk about the different types of clients you've had um and i guess coming from like experience of everybody you can tell that some will be more open to ideas you know ready to take your expertise into their uh, into their business and some might be more closed off and kind of come into your business with a fixed mindset as to what the answer is going to be so how do you deal with those challenges because obviously you, there's going to be different solutions to every different problem uh, and you'll have your favorites and they might challenge you so how do you deal with that uh, do you know what we had this problem a lot a few years ago so we pivoted to this sprint model we'd, we'd been working with google ventures they showed us okay this is working for us and we adopted it what we'd been doing before i would say failed it didn't work which was um acting as kind of a trying to fit into that partner role and go to brands and say okay we'd like to come and we'd like to deliver some ideas for you that you can build uh which is that linear linear kind of creative model um and it didn't work because everybody wanted to own the idea there was that sense of okay like i'm the owner it's about ownership i think now that we work in this model where it's fast turnaround we have kind of a program that you just throw people into they get spat out the end of the machine um it really is from from hour to hour like okay you've been given a new brief you're working a whole day for three or four even five days um, there's no time to stop and think and it's about the breadth of the ideas but the real principle that we work to now is nobody owns the idea so we don't have that problem so much anymore because ownership was the issue um, everybody was like okay no I'm, I'm going to cling on to this when the whole room of everybody who's kind of key to making sure that something's actually delivered feels that they were part of the solution even if it was in some remote, you know, I inspired it or I was in the room or, you know, I, yeah. I built on somebody else's very basic sketch. I think, yeah, losing that ownership had a really big impact. Um, now, I think it'd be silly to, to to talk to you and not mention or gloss over the idea of COVID-19. Um, it's not something we we like to, to dwell on because it's not the, uh, the nicest of times, obviously, but... In an industry where perhaps you're you're more able to to work from home, uh, and especially in say a tech environment, how do you feel that that COVID has affected um, both Google and in in you as an individual? Yeah, uh, it's hit everybody, right? Um, and I know that it's going to have hit some people much harder than others, and. Being in a company where we're well set up to work remotely and have a lot, you know, our teams are generally well established and have good working relationships and personal relationships as well, makes it an awful lot easier. And also having people you feel you can genuinely depend on, they're not going to let you down, you're still going to hit your your timelines. Um, that's made it a lot easier. So I'm not going to sit here and complain about where I sit because uh, we've we're in a much better position than um than a lot of people will be and I, I really i really do feel for uh for people who are struggling right now um both inside companies and who are struggling to find a new placement the main challenges for us i'd say is that we've really had to turn our long-term projects on their head so things that were priorities before are now you know third fourth fifth priorities and what we're really focusing on is okay how can we help people, brands, clients, customers, you know, every, all our stakeholders, how can we help everybody that, that we interact with, with their new day-to-day -day problems? So it is going out again and really relearning what's changing and relearning what issues people have. So that's been our main challenge. Personally, because I'm doing a lot of programming work anyway, um, the main challenge has just been not seeing people. I think we get a lot of energy, I'm, I'm sure you'd agree from being around other people so you do lose that and it's you know when you're running sprints as well and um running these kind of immersive programs with uh with your clients when it becomes remote it does sap a bit of energy out of it and and you're really having to yeah staring at a screen for eight hours is feels like being in a room for 16 so oh no vice versa sorry. but um yeah i'd say they've been the main the main challenges from for us have you found that having to communicate virtually has stifled the creativity of some of your recent sprints um we're working in new spaces because a lot is now around how can we um 
help with the, the challenge of COVID. So because we're in a new space, I think there's that renewed focus and you've got, I guess, ideas that are in a different space to before. So that's a, that gives a different type of energy, I guess. And also because you're trying to deliver quickly, you know, this is a pressing problem in people's lives. Um, that gives a bit of energy in terms of the quality of the creative work. I think because we're looking to produce things faster, as I said, longer term projects have gone on hold a bit. So maybe the ambitions come down a little bit and I'm hoping the ambition will step up maybe a couple of notches over the next year or so. But yeah, whilst we're in this adjustment phase, I would have to say that is a good question. And yes, it has, it's had some impact on the, the ambition. I, th- I think that is a, a big problem that a, a lot of people are sort of um, anticipating is perhaps a, a lack of motivation, especially with the, the furlough scheme going on as well. This lack of motivation once it's ended for people to come back into work, having been out of that environment for so long. Um, but unfortunately, it, it looks like the new problem is arising and that actually the the future of work as a whole might be changing for, for quite some time um, in terms of being working from home, working virtually. What do you think the future of work's, work looks like for, for sort of us us coming out into the job market and for those listening? Onboarding must be really hard right now. It must be really tough, like bringing people into your culture and making them feel welcome and getting them into the training program. That must be really tough. But companies will adjust. I think nomadic working still hasn't really caught on. And I think uh, anybody who's done some nomadic working, kind of traveling around the world, working from anywhere, anyone who's done that, I think uh, it's hard to go back. Um even if it's, you know, working from a park, uh, I expect to see a bit more of that going forward. Otherwise, a hybrid model is probably what we'll end up seeing. Um, people want to, you know, be able to stay home, walk their pets uh, at lunchtime and they might have, you know, kids might come home. And I expect, yeah, hybrid working is, is in the short term what we're going to see. There's also been some pretty, I mean, this is a bit more out there, but um, there's been some good steps forward in VR for conferencing. Uh, so for literal bigger conferences um, or for bigger training events. So um, Meet in VR is quite a good uh, product. They've been doing a lot of work. I know Firefox is doing good work as well uh, to try and design mostly for the Oculus Quest seems to be what a lot of people are using now just because it's got that uh, AR feature to be able to see um, see your room and environment and see your hands as well, more importantly. So I suspect those three areas, we're going to see some shifts. But yeah, we're all bad at predicting the future. Um, and just out of interest, do you think that not just this instance, but certain pandemics, crises, things like that that happen do accelerate technological advances? It's tricky. Uh, the companies have different philosophies, right? Like Apple seem to be more research heavy and um, and then design. Google are, I guess, a little less research heavy and a bit more um, uh, prototype heavy, test, kind of test, learn, iterate. In terms of Google, so I'm going to contextualize that in Google's philosophy. I think more is being tested, more new things are being tested now. The changes that are being made to products are, are a result of that, and it's being triggered by these um, by these major events. At the same time, we've seen that big breakthroughs can come from absolutely anywhere, and the biggest area, the biggest cause of breakthroughs, from certainly from what I see, is when you start making, you start withdrawing an old technology. So players just don't want to, um, monetize or make use of that space anymore. Good example is in vehicles, where less effort is going into um, classic car production. More is going into battery technology. We're seeing huge breakthroughs in in battery tech, solid solid state battery design, um, and that's largely coming from just a renewed focus on that area. Um, so really, I think it's a side effect of an emergency or, or major challenge that focus just goes in one direction for a lot of people. Um, and that's what leads to breakthroughs. I think one thing I think 
at university, for example, we've seen is that the COVID-19 crisis has led to a lot of online teaching that's accelerated the need for platforms. So, for example, Nottingham is using Microsoft Teams to conduct their lecture engagement, things like that. Um, do you think that the new technologies that are, have kind of come into a bigger play now because of the necessity of online working are going to be further adapted? Is it is there something new which you feel is the future of working, which actually could be a positive because personally for me, I love having all the resources available online right here for me. You know, some lecturers wouldn't provide lecture recapture, things like that, when you might need to go over it. So is there kind of developments and benefits where you see in the future working could become so much more efficient and productive, yeah. actually? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, lots of people say they are more productive. Uh, certainly lots of people that I've listened to um, working from home relative to being in the office. Certainly in commuter towns, it makes a big difference. Even in Nottingham with the buses, and it makes a difference. In terms of education, it'll be interesting to see what happens with MOOCs, um, whether they're taken a bit more, it kind of in quotation marks, seriously, um, whether it becomes a more credible option at a lower price point. It'll be interesting to see as well whether that forces universities to actually adapt because they, to be completely honest, universities have been able to take advantage of the fact that the accreditation and the prestige, uh, sorry, accreditation, the prestige, um, and the fact you're physically, you know, attending lectures, they were the reasons they were able to maintain a very high price point relative to then the new competitors, the disruptors. Um, so now is just, the, I guess it's the opportunity for the disruptors to say, we can do this better. We think we can do this better than you. We think we've, we can provide better materials, more accessible materials at a lower price point, more flexibly that has, I think what they're lacking right now is the accreditation and prestige. And to be completely honest, I'm seeing a lot of advertising from universities, um, pitching, certainly pitching master's courses where they're saying, okay, you can do this fully online now. And it's hard to see where that, you know, for my extra 10 grand, 20 grand a year, where's the value? So um, in answer to that, yeah, I really hope universities are disrupted by the by the new entrants. And hopefully they're the ones that will really prompt unis to, um, to evolve. Yeah, definitely. And I think that is uh, something we're all seeing now the the issue of being the first year exposed to it this this price point that we're paying for for all our materials going up at the the start of term and there you go have fun out of interest i know pearsons have set up their own university and are working collaboration with some FTSE 100 companies and there was also a rumor that google were considering doing something similar i think firstly do you think there's a problem that these prestigious universities are not equipping their students with the skills needed for work almost creating like a skills deficit and secondly could you see technology companies and mncs creating their own almost universities which they use kind of like a feeder for their grad schemes okay well two big questions right um could, okay, could I see Google doing it? Um, so Google has three courses that it's launching in collaboration with Coursera. It's already done collaborations with Coursera. They'll be going live in the next two to three mo uh, months. It'll be part of this, uh, this latter half of this year. Um, so they'll be in, currently it's in UX um, uh, project management and there's one more that's escaping me. Um, so the idea of those, I believe, is that in... Um, a short space of time, uh, I believe it's a, a matter of months, you're able to get a certification that Google will hold as equivalent to a bachelor's degree. So that's pretty appealing. Um, in answer to the second question, are universities equipping students for the workplace? It's hard to talk generally for all universities when i went to nottingham to truthfully it was very weak with the alum, alumni network whereas you get you know oxbridge which is very good for alumni um really bring them into events and you leverage the network have good relationships with uh with brands 
um, and and larger companies. For Nottingham, it always seemed the focus was on the big accounting firms, um, and there wasn't much focus on alumni. So I, I don't know how, how how it's changed in the last decade, um, but that was always the kind of issue when when I was there. In fact, it would be great to hear. I mean, how do you feel it's uh, it's changed? Me personally, I think although they're beginning to adopt the curriculum to encompass like more modern topics, like we had a technology module which talked about everything from artificial intelligence, big data, to 3D printing and like biotechnology. But with the exception of that module, it still seems almost, I guess, very classical in terms of you're looking at studies which may not be applicable to our current world and... I do agree it's a bit overly accountancy focused still. You don't hear much from big consultancy or tech firms, which I think most students aim to work in. I think on top of that, Tim, I think one thing that I've found, especially in the last years when I'm looking at internships and now grad jobs, is that if you really want to get the best information and the best help, it's not actually coming from the university, but rather society. So, for example, us at BML, we're trying to fill that gap a bit I know uh, NEFs are doing it as well but something that especially when I speak to my parents about it is they were really surprised that you know you're paying £9,250 and part of that was advertised is a career service right and for me personally I have not been overly impressed and I think that's something definitely where they can improve their service is that if they really not just like you say for the accountancy but in all career paths really push to help all graduates and all students do something with that, it's it's would be so much more valuable than just getting the degree, if that makes I sense. I think having that network, being able to connect people with alumni or, or, or working individuals is, um like you said, having that mailing list, that network is so, so important. And I think we all know from previous experience, getting work experience, trying to, to know that, it, it helps so much more when you know a guy or know a guy who knows a guy. Um, And I think that, for me personally, on, on my course, it, it's very theoretical, the economic side of it, um, with very little application into to real world. They tell you how it should apply and then tell you why it doesn't actually work. And you're left there thinking, great, I'm no, I'm no better off. And the, the, the politics side of it is, here's the history of the Labour Party, here's the history of that, here's what happened 10 years ago. Enjoy. Sort of, you, you, you know, further off, it's there's not much that you could perhaps take into the working life. So I think, but my counter argument would be that perhaps university does prepare you in a sense of your your independent learning, your your relationship skills, the the idea that you are prepared as a, a, a an intelligent academic individual to to tackle challenges and get taught these new skills at at a, a work environment. Um, now, Tim, you actually mentioned big data. Um, I have a question for you, Jonathan. Big data. Firstly, what is it for for myself, for everyone listening, really? Um, and how will big data reform marketing? Yeah, okay. Um, so big data is uh, very long, very wide uh, Excel sheets is probably the easiest way of thinking about it, um, which contain a lot of information. Depending on the company, it will be different types of information. The web generates an awful lot of uh, data from, you know, which browser you're using to um, which link you click. And uh, generally, the challenge with working with big data isn't a lack of it. It's uh, it's just knowing what to do with it because there's so many features that you can work with, making sure it's well handled, um, that uh, policies and um, and of course laws are uh, are well handled, well managed, but also that you're using it in a way that's creative. It's a challenge. It, it really is a challenge. And for different companies, you know, some companies are going to be using it for marketing, product development, um, optimization of web. Some are using it for uh, for manufacturing or distribution. Um, yeah, it really is. It's pretty pervasive. 
the easiest way to think about it t- tangibly is how Formula One teams compete, right? So they're trying to make best use of their data. They have a lot of data points that they can look at. Aside from just speed, they're looking at resistance, they're looking at uh, acceleration, they're looking, you know, there's lots of variables that they need to account for. So in the same way as a Formula One team is trying to optimize for the result, uh, a company will look to optimize their use of data, uh, useful data for whatever their goal is. Um, so to your question of in marketing, how will it change marketing? Um, I mean, it already has, to be honest, uh, certainly in advertising optimization, you know, finding good ads that are well-placed at the right time, reaching the right people, which is the classic marketing problem, at least the paid marketing problem, that's being pretty well handled because automation's being brought into it more and more. You don't need humans there. Uh, making the decisions machines can just have the decision handed off to them and the consequence is is very small if if a bad decision is made also the the reason that's becoming so effective is because of testing at scale you're able to split test a b test say okay i'm going to try this thing here this thing here whichever one does best is most effective and then i'm going to iterate off the most effective one again that's being automated and uh, as a result of that efficiency is massively increasing What's more exciting for me, to be completely honest, is the creative side, because it's the one thing you can't really automate. Like you need an idea. You need somebody needs to go out and film something or, or need to go out and make something. A machine can't currently do that. And uh, and it has so much effect relative to the placement and timing, just the messaging. And, you know, can you solve somebody's problem very quickly, uh, very snappily? Um, in a way that captures their imagination or inspires them or or um, changes their perception. That's that for me is the real challenge for the next 10, 20 years. How can we, you know, getting an advantage in that space and coming up with better ideas? So you just mentioned changing people's perception. I think recently since the Cambridge Analytica scandal on Facebook and the exposure of how some algorithms are designed to keep users on the app to maximize the revenue coming in from advertisers Um, people are beginning to get worried about their data being used by algorithms to change their perceptions or someone's behavior how at google do you approach data in like an ethical way and moving forward do you anticipate regulations to counteract using algorithms and artificial intelligence to influence a person's perception so i mean just on changing people's behavior that that isn't something um that isn't something google tries to do um not in the way that you've seen publicized about um some other tech companies um in terms of working with um with data so personally i only work with aggregated data so in my seven years at Google, um, I have never seen a single piece of PII, uh, so personally identifying information about a user, ever. Um, so when I talk about working with aggregated data, these will be like groups of 50, 50 it's like, like working with census data. So it'll be like 50 plus people in a, in a big group where you can't see you know information about who the people are. It's just taking the collective um, behavior of that group and trying to understand it and build better things for that group and understand them. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the real focus. In terms of working with big data, um, I know there's the use of the kind of collective they when we talk about, okay, they, big tech. I know that the people working inside these companies are like me. They just want to do better for users. They want to make the web a better experience. They are users themselves. It's, you know, it it's something we're passionate about because we are the with the consumer as well as the producer. So um, I think we all have that sense of guardianship over um, the web and making it better and doing well by users. I was listening to a talk about nine months ago from uh, Ruth Porat, um, who's the CFO at Google. She made a really nice comparison and she said she was responding to a question about data being like the new oil, big data being like the new oil. And she said, um, actually, it's more like sunlight. 
and in many ways i think that's true it's it's incredibly abundant um we can do great things with it it's not fi- finite it's not polluting um so yeah i i'd like to think we're just building better solar panels to be honest i think that's very interesting to hear the your point of view from the tech side about what happened with data because i think a lot of people for example i got the google nest mini from spotify because i had spotify premium and when i sent the link to my friends say oh get one like it's free why not a lot of were saying no but they'll be listening to you like they're gonna try and take your data to list all your conversations and i think hearing from your perspective about just trying to do better for the customer is something that more people need to hear about because i'm less skeptical i'm not as skeptical as them as about what your your google's for example's intentions are so how do you try and combat this growing sense of fear i guess about technology and being afraid of they're going to listen to me and try and change my behavior like tim said or kind of change uh, influence my actions i guess it's very difficult with perception right um you you mentioned that you're doing ai and ml um courses and you understand how that's working from the management side and that kind of understanding how systems are trained like how it actually works that there aren't you know people there in the machine poking them um that understanding understanding that you're effectively just taking you know a lot of variables and you're trying to build a model um which is generalizable and um makes good decisions you're just trying to make help machines make better decisions fundamentally um i think that understanding um and the understanding that these products, if well regulated, can make a real difference in our lives and make better products. I think that's how we can start seeing better things enter the market and, and feel more comfortable at, about having these things um, around us. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's a great question. Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, I think that it's a fantastic way to sort of view things when you stop thinking about... Uh, robots trying to take over the world and start thinking about how they can aid your life it's uh, it all becomes a, a bit less daunting doesn't it um now tim's actually got a fantastic last question and it's uh, along the lines of what we like to finish every podcast on um tim takes away so being at google i'm sure you've been around a lot of successful individuals and i hope you don't mind me saying but you're quite a successful individual yourself kind <laughs> um so from your experience, are there any specific traits or behaviours which help distinguish a successful individual? And the other thing is, what advice would you give to listeners who themselves want to be successful? God, I've always hated it. Like, I've hated listening to people answer this question. I don't mind the question, but I hate listening to people answer it. Because I'm like, you don't know me. You don't know my life. You can't generalise. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the world's changed so much as well since I was in your position. You know, you're in a different spot to where I was. Um, So all I can give you is kind of what I wish I'd... What I guess I wish somebody had quickly patted me on the back and said, you know what, this will help you. Knowing this is a shortcut to you having to find out this (laughs) difficult-to-learn thing yourself. Yeah, I think... I think some of the things I've said, right, being envious and acting on that is, has for, certainly for me, has been really helpful because it, it means I've gone out and done things, you know, I want to emulate. And uh, it's not been forced. It's just been like, wow, that's so interesting. I really want to understand that, uh, whether that's, you know, behavioral economics or whether that's um, programming or whatever it is. I, this stuff is just so interesting. And, um, yeah, th- for me, that's been really helpful. I think the other, the other thing that's been useful is, I mean, I mentioned makers as well. I think being a maker really is going to help certainly over the next five years, just having something where you can say, look, I built this. I built this with these other people and they enjoyed working with me. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. I think if, if people like working with you, it makes so much difference. And that's how a lot of us end up finding new roles, right? Somebody will just pass yeah. a word along and say, I work with this, with this um, girl or guy and uh they were great and and i'd like to work with them some more so i'd say that's been really helpful but one thing i guess i'd add which isn't for me this is what our directors have always told us to try to do is to be is to be t-shaped and it sounds a bit fluffy and vague but 
um, what they've tried to encourage us to do is build a good generalized base, um, like a really um, solid foundation um, across lots of different competences. So you have you've dabbled a little bit in everything and that build that one part of the vertical T that you go really deep on. So go broad, learn a bit of everything and then pick that one thing. Yeah, I want to be the go to for this. I want to I want to um, I really want to understand this in depth. And that's kind of the vertical side of the T. So for us, that was pretty good advice. I think a lot of us tried to adhere to that in some way. Guys listening, broaden your horizons and then specialize. Um, fantastic advice there. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us in the meeting room. Uh, it's a hell of a way to wrap up, I think. And a massive thank you to you, Jonathan, for um, you. for joining us. It's been wonderful having you in. Thanks for having me, and it's been great. Great to meet you all. <laughs> you too. Um, we'll speak to you all next week. Have a good week, guys.